Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. The Constitution famous, famously delegates different governmental powers to the different branches of government. The legislative power to Congress, the executive power to the president, and the judicial power to the courts. Why does the, the Constitution divide governmental authority this way, and how does the division affect how the courts operate? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Pevand Adut, Associate Professor of Law at Virginia Law School. Pevand, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Why does the Constitution divide power this way? So in the Federalist Papers, the founders stressed that the division was primarily to prevent tyranny. So I'm thinking here about Federalist number 47, where James Madison writes that the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judicial in the same hands, is what he calls the very definition of tyranny. So by dividing these three powers, the Constitution prevents any single branch from controlling the whole governmental power. So for example, Congress has the authority to pass laws about immigration, and then the president or the executive branch decides how to enforce those laws given limited resources and financial uh, and, and funds. By contrast, in a parliamentary system, you could think about England today, the prime minister is part of the legislative body. So this means that the prime minister has a hand in crafting the law and then in deciding how it's applied on the ground. So these two systems are really different. I also think that separation of powers helps to promote some expertise in each of the branches. So each of the branches becomes a real expert in if it's Congress drafting laws, if it's courts interpreting laws, and in the executive branch, the president in deciding how to apply those laws on the ground in reality. Let's focus on the judicial power for a moment. How does the delegation of that power to the courts constrain other branches? I think because judges are the ones who resolve actual cases, Congress and the president are prevented from deciding cases. So for instance, if Congress passes a law criminalizing the killing of a federal agent, and a prosecutor who's a member of the executive branch under the presidency brings a case against an individual, courts are the one administering that trial. So this means that if the law Congress, or this means that the law Congress passed has to be constitutional, and also that the executive branch has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's kind of easy to see how, if the president or Congress were responsible for the trial, there would be this potential for deep unfairness. Also, uh, in uh, one of the seminal cases, the most important cases uh, of the early court system in Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court announced this principle known as judicial review. And this basically means that judges, absent some exceptions, have the final interpretation over the Constitution or a federal law. So Congress and the president can't interpret the Constitution or other federal laws in a way that contradicts how the Supreme Court has interpreted them. So for example, in 
the Obergefell case, the Supreme Court recognized a right in the 14th Amendment for same-sex couples to marry. And the principle of judicial review means that Congress and the president can't interpret the 14th Amendment to say that same-sex couples don't have the right to marry. Finally, and this is a lot of what I study, when officials and other branches are parties to a case before the courts, judges can issue orders in those cases that those officials are expected to, and some might say that they must obey. So for instance, President Nixon claimed that he claimed executive privilege over recordings from the Oval Office, and he initially refused to turn them over to Congress. But after the case, the United States versus Nixon went through the judicial system, the Supreme Court held that Nixon didn't have a claim of executive privilege, and he had to turn over the tapes, which he did. And that cooperation that other branches follow judicial orders was quite extraordinary. And it's either by tradition or something that they must do, we expect them to do. And that's another way that this division of power constrains the other branches. How does the delegation of the judicial power and only the judicial power to the courts constrain the courts? So I think that's a really interesting question. The very easy answer is that courts generally can't exercise legislative or executive powers. So courts can't pass laws or arrest people for breaking them. But the trickier questions are about the line between judicial power and those other powers. So when courts decide that Congress's law means X and not Y, when does judging become legislative? And interestingly, it's the courts that get to decide where that line is. There's this famous case where President George Washington wanted the United States to be neutral during the French Revolution. And he was worried that neutrality might be in violation of treaty obligations that he had signed on behalf of the United States. So these were deeply important questions for the president and the United States. And Washington wanted an authoritative answer. So he turned to the Supreme Court uh, to give him those answers. And Washington had his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, and other cabinet members send this letter to the Supreme Court asking for its opinion on what the United States uh, treaty obligations actually were. But the Supreme Court politely but firmly refused to answer. And the court reasoned that the answer would be an advisory opinion because it wasn't an exercise of judicial power because there wasn't an actual case involved. Washington wouldn't necessarily be bound by what it was that the court said. And so the court says, we're here to resolve cases and actual litigation. So if the interpretation of treaties is required in the context of litigation, that's something judges can answer. But if it's just the interpretation of a treaty outside of litigation, then judges can't answer the question, even if we think they might have legal expertise that's relevant to a determination that someone in the executive branch might want to make. Are there limitations on the judicial power even within the context of an actual case or litigation? That, that's a great question. So um, one of the classes I teach federal courts is all about those sorts of limits. And there are tons of them. The one prominent one is known as the political question doctrine. So in 2019, in this case called Rucho, the Supreme Court considered a litigation challenge to partisan attempts by states to draw election district lines to entrench either Democrats or Republicans in Congress. 
And even though there was a real case and litigation involved, the Supreme Court held that the decision of whether these districts violated the Constitution couldn't be made using judicial standards, but instead were inherently political standards. And so they said, that's not left to us. We're not political. We don't make political decisions. We make judicial decisions. And so they decided, even in that context, that that's a limit on judicial power. What are some current issues involving the separation of powers and the courts? I love this question because that's exactly what I'm looking at, exactly what I study. And one of the sort of the richest areas that we can think about as involving this today is the congressional investigation into the January 6th insurrection. So on the one hand, Congress is investigating the former president and his advisors. And on the other hand, the former president and his advisors, or some of them, are resisting that investigation and claiming to have executive privilege. So that's a direct clash between Congress and the president that implicates separation of powers. But an interesting thing about this era is that each of these branches still tend to involve the courts when seeking to enforce their respective positions. So Congress might ask the courts to enforce the subpoenas, which they have, and the former officials will ask courts to enforce their claims of privilege to justify their refusal to produce documents or to testify. And this puts courts in a position that Justice Kennedy once concisely described as awkward uh, because courts are being asked to exercise their judicial power in service of one branch against the other. And so courts try to avoid the situation by using doctrines and uh, practices of what I've called separation of powers avoidance where courts basically look for ways to avoid being in the middle of Congress and the president. So the courts might insist on strict compliance with nonpartisan procedural requirements in the hope that in the meantime, the parties might find a way to settle the matter themselves. Like, let's kick this can down the road and ask Congress and the former president to try again so we don't have to be involved. Pevan? Thank you so much for being on the show and discussing the separation of powers and judges. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff and uh, I am so grateful for the chance to do that. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs. Respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.